Blog Talk Radio. I'm Robert Rogers, and you have just connected with Parkinson's the Recovery, the place to come, the place to be, to be able to get information that can help you get sustained relief from whatever symptoms you might be currently experiencing that are associated with a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. A heads up, if you haven't heard yet, the summer 2011 edition of the Parkinson's Recovery magazine is hot off the press. And by that, I mean it's a download. You can get the download by going to parkinsonsrecovery.com, click on the resources button, and you'll see there's a page link there to all the magazines. I just listed last night the uh, summer 2011 Parkinson's Recovery magazine. It is an issue that will dazzle you. The articles are absolutely incredible. So be sure to get your download, and I've sent out an email. You'll have a direct link on the email to be able to download that directly uh, onto your computer. Needless to say, that's obviously free, as uh, is most of what we do here at Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Hickey, who is born and raised in Peekskill, New York. Dr. Hickey graduated from the University of Notre Dame. He is a graduate of the New York Medical College, and his residency was completed at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. In 2004, Dr. Hickey opened the Hickey Wellness Center, which is a primary care internal medicine facility in the incredible location of Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. In addition to providing primary care, Dr. Hickey is currently doing clinical research on various conditions, including vibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, and hold on to your seats, Parkinson's disease. Dr. Hickey, thanks so much for being with us today on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Robert. I'm looking forward to it. So tell us about yourself. Well, I, you know, you've said most of it. I was born and raised in New York, uh, practiced in New York uh, for about 15 years, uh, was a clinical instructor of internal medicine at New York Medical College, my alma mater, and uh, tried to teach younger doctors, you know, how to uh, how not to kill anybody. Um, how to properly administer and take histories and physicals. And my my area that I loved the most was history and physical and, and diagnostic skills. Um, and around 1994, I moved uh, to Hilton Head basically to escape the weather um, from New York. And um, really, a lot of uh, a lot of changes occurred when I reached Hilton Head. It was somewhat of a um, of a freer environment for me, you know, away from from family and friends, I was able to expand a little bit. Um, I started to, most of what an internist does, and, and I'm an, a board-certified internist, um, most of what an internist does is take care of uh, heart disease and cancer and diabetes, and that occupied most of my time uh, for a good 10 years, and I, I I basically uh, found that carbohydrates or glucose ingestion was the major cause of coronary disease. You know, we've been taught um, for years that that coronary disease or heart disease and artery disease is related to cholesterol and cholesterol 
ingestion, but that's it's really not so. Um, you really don't develop heart disease from ingesting cholesterol. You develop heart disease from having insulin resistance. So I studied that um, for about 10 years and eventually did a research paper with uh, Dr. Eric Westman from Duke University um, using the Atkins diet to reduce um, heart disease risk factors. And what we did was we measured something very specific to heart disease, um, something called lipoprotein subclasses. So, you know, you get your LDL cholesterol measured and your total cholesterol measured, and, and you figure if it's under the, the goal of the National Cholesterol Education Panel, you're okay. But that's not true. Clearly, clearly 30 to 40% of people who have a heart attack or die from a heart attack have LDL cholesterol supposedly to the goal of the National Cholesterol Education Panel. So I tried to explain why. Um, what is it? Um, what is it about those people that caused the, a heart attack despite you know, my having t told them that they didn't have anything to worry about after the physical? And it turns out that there's something new you could measure. There's something more you could measure. And it's called uh, lipoprotein subclasses, which looks at the size of the LDL particle. And the smaller the LDL cholesterol particle is, the more likely it's going to penetrate the artery wall and the more of them you need. So that that was my first sort of step away from the box, so to speak, um, using the Atkins diet in people with heart disease was considered absolutely crazy. Um, but Dr. Atkins felt that that was necessary because of carbohydrates put, uh, potential to turn into fat. So very briefly, if you have insulin resistance, meaning your cells no longer use insulin well, and that's someone who's a type 2 diabetic, but most people are well on the way to that um, before they are defined as a diabetic. Those people, when they eat carbohydrates, really can't transfer them from the blood into their cells because insulin is the hormone that does that. You're insulin resistant. It creates um, a backup of glucose in your blood, and your, your liver will then convert that glucose into cholesterol, and you, you become this cholesterol-producing factory. So... I was restricting carbohydrates in my heart disease patients. Uh, mind you, these were people who were on cholesterol-lowering drugs and were still having recurrent heart attacks and had LDL cholesterols to the goal um, of the National Cholesterol Education Panel. So I found that they were still at great risk because of the size of the LDL particle. And when I restricted carbohydrates, we were able to reverse that trend. And so we published a paper in 2003, to, uh, 2003 together in a, a journal called the Metabolic Syndrome. And it was around that time that um, I learned how to properly measure um, toxic metals um, around 2003. So I had been avidly studying um, heart disease prevention with the lower carbohydrate diet, but it was around that time that a family member got very sick and um, was told that he had a you know, a, a diagnosis that would probably give him a prognosis of six to eight months and, and he should get his affairs in order. And he called me and said, can you help me, doc? And I said, well, come down and let's see what we can figure out. And it turned out he had, he had lead toxicity. And, you know, that led to my discovering that we, we really aren't measuring um, toxic metals properly. 
Um, and it led to a lot of investigation that uncovered a lot of very interesting things that that, that showed me that neurotoxic metals um, contribute uh, to many neurodegenerative disorders. So it was a uh, it, it was quite a revelation. Um, if I may, I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit. Um, a cousin of mine was given a, a diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a degenerative uh, and and almost uh, almost universally fatal condition of the bone marrow where he couldn't make blood and he was seen at two bone marrow transplant centers one in boston one in new york uh, and another down here in south carolina where i got a third opinion and he his bone marrow just couldn't produce blood so you know just reviewing his history um he was a plumber and he worked for a nuclear power plant and that was my only clue that he was a plumber and plumbers deal with lead pipes and i said well john i know i know that uh, lead toxicity can create anemia and you have a severe anemia um have you been exposed to lead and he said yeah doc i had i had uh, removed um several lead pipes uh, from this one facility um in new york and that was a year before he got sick so i said well if you have lead toxicity um then there's something called chelation, which I had never used, I'd never even thought of using, uh, didn't know how to use 10 years ago. Um, but I said there's this treatment called chelation that could remove the lead, and maybe that's the only thing you could have that I could help you with. And so he got excited, I got excited. Um, but the traditional measurement that I was taught for lead toxicity was to a blood lead level and to do a 24-hour urine collection for heavy metals. And he had very little lead in his blood. He only had three micrograms, and the average person has up to 10. Um, and he had very little excretion from the 24-hour urine. So I got very disappointed and said, well, John, I don't think you have lead toxicity. And, of course, he was already he was already psyched up to be chelated. Um, and chelation, you know, dates back to FDA-approved EDTA chelation was 1951. Now, I had never thought to chelate a person for heavy metal toxicity because I've never found an elevated blood lead level. And so I assumed that that meant they weren't exposed to it. But with John, he begged me to chelate him anyway. Um, and, you know, he said, look, I have nothing else I can do. I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, I've had a lot of lead exposure. I don't know why it's in the blood. So I started to chelate him. Um, I learned how to do it. I started to chelate him, and within about six weeks, his bone marrow function returned to normal. So a light bulb went off in my head. Uh, we're measuring this wrong. There's got to be another way to measure it, and, and that led to some very interesting investigations, and that's what got me started on this. And then I started testing in the proper way um, neurotoxic metals, and they are so commonly present in Parkinson's disease and in Alzheimer's disease and in MS, um, you know, it's, the, the levels are, are ubiquitous in those diseases. So I started to remove them to see what would happen, and I started getting some clinical responses, and that's really how I, I started out 10 years ago. What specifically was it that led you to suspect a connection between the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and heavy metals? Well, my neurology, con uh, my 
my neurology consults would always include a heavy metal analysis. So whenever I would send someone to one of my colleagues in neurology who had a neurologic disorder, they would always do a heavy metal screen. So, and that, that was particularly true for peripheral neuropathy. Um, and really, uh, for any neurodegenerative disorder, you have to consider lead and mercury, cadmium toxicity, aluminum toxicity. These are, these are definite causes of neurodegeneration. You know, you know, we, we should go through some of the literature connecting those disorders and what those metals do to brain function. Um, but that was always included as almost a routine screen. And the way we would screen for it and the way that most neurologists if they even think of it, currently screen for it, is to do a blood lead and mercury level, blood aluminum level, and a 24-hour urine collection. But in 20 years of screening people for those metals, I never found an elevated level. Now, that means one of two things. Number one, that no one has toxicity from these metals and that we've kept the environment relatively pure of them. Because if it's in the environment, it's in us. We eat the food that comes out of the ground, we breathe the air, um, you know, we breathe the dust uh, that that is in the ground. We've Most of us grew up during the era of leaded gasoline, so when you put lead into gasoline, tetraethyl lead came out of everybody's exhaust pipe, and we inhaled it. And lead and mercury are so similar in their chemical structure and positive charge to calcium, zinc, and magnesium that they are directed right into the bone and muscle and cells um, just like calcium would be. So they're automatically attracted into the tissues. And that's why you don't find them in the blood because they disappear within hours to days after exposure and they, most of it are attracted into bone. So really, I started out very innocently um, with the idea, well, I know that mercury and lead are toxic to the nervous system and now that I know how to measure it, now that I know how to tell what's in my particular patient, um, what would happen if I removed them? And that, I would see a clinical response. I would see an improvement in energy first. I would see uh, an improvement in cognitive function. Um, Parkinson's patients constantly fall asleep and everything slows down, their thinking slows down, their movement slows down. You know, and that's electrical speed. Um, electrical speed is positive and negative charges, trans, you know, being separated. So, you know, that's the way your neuron works. Your, your cell membrane is negatively charged. Calcium, zinc, magnesium, sodium, potassium, they're positively charged metals. And you have these little pumps on the cell membranes that separate the positive charge from the cell membrane, and that creates a tension because positive charges want to meet a negative charge. They want to come together. So the cell membranes generate electricity by basically separating sodium and potassium and calcium from the, from the cell membrane with sodium, potassium, calcium pumps. And that separation of the positive charge from the negative charge actually creates an electrical spark, and that's what a uh, neuronal depolarization is. Um, so I started to think in these terms that, well, what if you have the wrong positive charges? What if you have lead instead of uh, sodium or lead instead of uh, calcium? And it led me to research what other researchers have have talked about, and it, and it basically explained uh, it, it explained how a neuron can dysfunction, 
how a neuron or a mitochondria, a neuronal mitochondria uh, might fall apart, what would happen if the mitochondria fell apart, what, what then happens, uh, what kind of oxidative stresses occur within the neuron. And you know, all this was basically explained by neuroscientists. So the key was I learned how to measure it. And the second thing was I was curious to see if they were present, if these metals, these toxic metals were present in my patients with uh, idiopathic Parkinson's disease, idiopathic Alzheimer's disease. And lo and behold, I found very high levels um, of mercury particularly and lead in those patients. Almost always those, that combination of mercury and lead are found in, in my Parkinson's patients. And so I started to remove it to see what would happen. And, you know, I've, I saw significant improvements um, in some of the clinical parameters, particularly particularly in the cognitive function, in the alertness, in the uh, speed of movement. Um, and what, what's, what's also very interesting is that I started to see that I was able to lower the dose of their medications. Um, you know, most of the there's no question that Cinemet and Levodopa will will help the symptoms of a Parkinson's patients, but that is a relatively short-lived um, period of time, five, six years, and then they start getting um, further reductions in dopamine production. You have to increase the doses, and then you start seeing the side effects like dyskinesia. And I was able to, I was able to see an an ability to lower the Cinemet dose. Um, and improve the dyskinesia and improve some of the other symptoms like psychosis um, by low, if you can give less medicine. Uh, and I, I, I really tried to explain what I was doing, what I was seeing um, with some of the neuroscience. You know, why, would, why would I be able to lower the medication? Well, one of the reasons is probably they're able to produce some of their own dopamine, that, that these these neurotoxic metals, if they disable the mitochondria of, this, of the, the neurons in the midbrain, they can reduce uh, the production. And some of these metals, some of these metals you can attract out of the cell, and that would improve the mitochondrial function. So, you know, it, basically, uh, just by trial and error, um, by looking to see what was in the patient, by using the FDA-approved treatment to remove those metals, um, chelation, I was able to see some clinical responses. I am quite sure that a number of the listeners right now have probably had the test that you mentioned. They've had a blood test, they've had a urine analysis, and they've been told that they do not have any heavy metals in their body. You're saying that's not really going to reveal whether or not those heavy metals are there. So what is the best way to measure neurotoxic metals? Right. Um, and that's well established in the occupational health and environmental health literature. Um, it's not necessarily established in the general medical literature. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a normally trained doctor, board-certified internist. I knew nothing about any of this literature. I was taught to measure it. Um, as a blood test and as a 24-hour urine collection. But when you look at some of the literature, when you, I went all the way back to, to 1950, 1960, in the 60s, the 70s, and, and, and the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a tremendous amount of research on heavy metal toxicity because of, you know, the 
the pollution um, that we were dealing with. We we had we had no we had no thought about how toxic these metals were, um, even though we should have. I mean, there's hundreds of years of information on lead poisoning and mercury poisoning um, throughout the literature, but but we put lead into gasoline. We put we made we put lead into paint. Um, so people who worked in those factories got very sick. And, you know, battery factories, paint factories, uh, people working in the petroleum industry got very very sick and because they were working every single day with with lead or or with other toxic metals uh, it was obvious why they got sick their blood lead level was high because they were exposed to it on a daily basis Uh, when researchers would remove them from a factory um, when doctors would remove them from a factory because their lead level was extremely high in the blood because your blood level is going to tell you what you were exposed to within the past few days and within days, it's going to be attracted into your bone or into your muscles or into your other cells. So it disappears from the blood. And researchers found that, that in, the, in the 60s and 70s that, that if you remove those patients from, from the industrial source of, of the, say, lead poisoning, for instance, uh, that the lead would eventually disappear from the blood, but they, the patient didn't get better. And they would measure what was being excreted and very little amounts were being excreted. So the conclusion was, well, these people are retaining the lead. Where are they retaining it? And biopsy studies then uh, sought the source of, you know, where the lead was going, and, and most of it goes into bone. So 90%, so when you take a calcium pill, um, you expect it to help fortify your bones. Well, how does it know to go into the bone? Well, it does. You know, the good Lord set it up properly. Um, your bones are made out of protein and plenty of protein. And protein is, is negatively charged. And calcium, zinc, and magnesium are positively charged. Two plus positively charged pro, uh, calcium will be, will be attracted into the negatively charged uh, protein of your bones. So in the same fashion, lead and mercury and cadmium and aluminum are two plus positively charged, aluminum being three plus positively charged, they're going to be attracted into bone just like calcium will. So the, so the researchers found that if you biopsy the bone and you analyze the bone, the majority of the lead went into the bone. And then that led to specific x-rays that could, that could actually detect lead in bone. So there's, a, there's an x-ray called K-shell x-ray fluorescence that was developed in the late 70s. And this, this is a special x-ray technique that can actually quantitate the lead content of your bone or the mercury content of your bone. So that led to the capability of studying it. So if you, if you did an x-ray of this bone, and this, this x-ray is not widely available. Um, it's available at research centers. Um, there's a researcher at University of Michigan, Howard Hugh, who does a lot of x-ray fluorescence studies with lead. And there are people at Harvard who do it. And uh, so there's three or four places around the country you can get this X-ray. And this X-ray can quantitate how much lead is in your shin bone, for instance. And if you you can quantitate how much lead and mercury is in the shin bone as opposed to calcium, and you watch those populations of people, you can see that those with the higher lead 
levels in their shin bone versus the lower lead levels get more neurodegenerative diseases. They get more dementia. They get more uh, brain breakdown. They get more coronary disease. And these studies, there's several beautiful studies correlating lead and mercury content of bones. So, so the, the researchers showed that, well, these, these metals disappear from blood, and if they disappear from blood, they're not going to be excreted. So you're not going to find them in a blood test. You're not going to find them in a 24-hour urine collection, and that's the way they're screened by most doctors. Um, and that's the way I screened for it until I discovered that there was a different way of measuring it. So in the early 80s, of course, um, several other interesting metals started to evolve, like cadmium and aluminum and, and mercury, things that we were using in industry that were being placed in the environment. And obviously, if they're in the environment, we're going to absorb them through our food source and through the air. So to try and get a, a better um, idea of how many different toxic metals were in bone and that were absorbed from the environment, a, a measurement was designed in 1983 um, called the EDTA, uh, where you would give a chelator. Now, a chelator is a negatively charged protein that's more negatively charged. It's not necessarily a protein, but it acts like a protein. Um, it's a negatively charged substance that is more negatively charged than the protein of your bone. So now the lead in that bone wants to leave the bone and go on to a greater negative charge because of a greater magnetic attraction. So a, so a chelator is actually, was actually designed in, in the early 40s, 1940s, because uh, of arsine gas, which is a, a poison gas that the Germans were using on the British and, and French troops. Um, they, were, they were basically putting arsenic into, into a bomb. They were exploding the bomb. The soldiers would inhale the arsenic gas, and they would drop dead. And the autopsy studies would show, well, they're dying of arsenic, and the, the British, French, and American doctors were, uh, you know, basically perplexed as to what to do about this, and they called in the chemist and said, could you make a safe antidote for this, or we're all going to be speak, speaking German soon, and they said, well, sure we could. We could, we could put a substance in the, in the blood that would, that would be more attractive to the arsenic than, say, the protein of the heart or the protein of the, of the red blood cells, so they made the first human chelator called BAL, British Anti-Lewisite, and they would inject the soldiers, and that was an antidote for the arsenic. So as the arsenic was inhaled, it would be selectively attracted into the chelator. The chelator would bind it so that it couldn't interact with any other tissue, and then the kidney would, and liver would excrete it. So that was basically an antidote to arsine gas that occurred in 1941. And over the next decade, it was approved Different chelators were improved by the FDA for lead poisoning and for mercury poisoning, and most of the most of the clinical approaches to that were usually done in factory workers or people exposed at the workplace. So they had this steady exposure on a daily basis. So it would you would see it in the blood, but again, when you remove them from the factory, the the, the levels of these metals would disappear. So researchers said, well, why don't we if if we take somebody out of a factory and and think of it in our case we're we're not factory workers we just grew up in america so you know i'm 60 years old now i've inhaled lead for most of my life through automobile exhaust 
Um, my father smoked, so I inhaled secondhand cigarette smoke. Cigarettes have, uh, they're grown in the soil, so it's tobacco that's grown in the soil. So it, ta- it basically accumulates all the toxic metals that are in the soil are going to be in the tobacco plant, as they are in a tomato. But when you eat a tomato with lead and mercury and arsenic in it, your liver has natural chelators that can remove that. There are very important chelators in the liver that will detox our food and then excrete the, the metal through the intestines. Um, you know, one of the things that's missing in Parkinson's disease, one of the things I should say that is overly used and used up in Parkinson's disease is called glutathione. And glutathione is a very natural chelator antioxidant that, that must be present in the, in the cell that makes dopamine to neutralize the free radicals that occur with normal metabolism. And we find that in the substantia nigra, the midbrain of Parkinson's patients, there is a relative absence of glutathione. And so that leaves the, the cells under distress. So when you, when you eat a tomato, the lead and cadmium and arsenic and nickel that go into the liver, most of that is, is, is chelated by the liver cells and removed from the system. Um, but if you inhale it through smoke or through the air or through a cigarette, then you, you, you don't have that defense. The lung doesn't have that defense. It's distributed from the lead lung into the blood and it's in the, and goes directly into bone and muscle. And then it basically stays there for decades. So if you, so when I grew up, I inhaled lead. Gas was basically leaded until 1990. Um, so we inhaled lead up to that point on a daily basis. And that's why the lead levels in the 70s in children were very high because of leaded gasoline. That's why gas was unleaded. But the problem with what happens to that lead is it doesn't leave the body. Most of it goes into bone. So bone becomes the major source for lead and mercury. And basically the, the lead and mercury displaces calcium from the bone and it stays there until something happens to the bone. So it may stay there for decades. And when something happens to the bone, if you break a bone, if you lose the bone because of aging and osteoporosis, um, if you have surgery on a bone, you're going to release whatever's in that bone into the general cir- circulation. And some of those metals will, will find access to the central nervous system. So your bone kind of sacrifices itself by attracting these metals. Um, and these metals will displace calcium from the bone. But when something happens to the bone, that's when it transfers to the brain. And that's what happens with aging. Because as you age, you start to lose bone. And when you lose bone, the lead and the mercury in the bone gets released and can seed the central nervous system. Um, So researchers in the 80s, in the early 80s, said, well, we want to sample what's in the bone. We certainly can't biopsy everybody's bones. So why don't we use the method of removing the metals, the method approved by the FDA was chelation. If you have lead poisoning or mercury poisoning, you would chelate that person to remove those heavy metals to try and improve their lot. Well, they said, why don't we chelate somebody? Why don't we give the chelator intravenously and or orally and attract the metal out of the bone and the muscle onto the chelator, and then the liver and kidney will immediately excrete it. So they collected the urine immediately after the chelation, and they found that there was a huge amount of lead and mercury coming out of the body from the removal process. So that was adopted as a method of 
of measurement. Um, basically, in in occupational medicine, um, someone uh, is in a factory, someone uh, gets high blood pressure and kidney failure, which are known to be caused by lead and mercury, they would be removed from the factory, the levels would be uh, reduced in the blood, but they would still be in the bone and muscle and kidney, so they would chelate that person. Then, after the chelation, immediately collect the urine for 24 hours and measure how much lead came out. And that became pretty much the standard way of tr of measuring heavy metals is to measure it after a chelation. And that uh, method of measurement was uh, basically uh, sort of approved by that community in 
that, that are appearing with Parkinson's disease and with Alzheimer's disease that might explain why, if you have lead in your bone, for instance, it's attracted into your substantia nigra or your midbrain and you develop a degeneration of that area of the brain versus someone else who might not even attract it into the brain and never develop dementia or someone who attracted into a different area of the brain. Um, there's a lot of plausible explanation as to why that would, would occur. So, you know, you could see you could see how excited I got once I knew how to measure it, and once I found that, uh, you know, that there was a tremendous amount of literature that showed the proper measurement. So, the the name of the measurement is called post provocation. You provoke the metal to come out of the the bone and muscle with the chelator, and then after giving the chelator, as the metals start to come out of the bone and muscle and get attracted to the chelator, which is how you would remove the metals if you were poisoned by them um, with chelation. You do a chelation, and then you collect the urine for 24 hours and have it analyzed, and then you can see uh, a big difference. You can see a tremendous difference in, in what's in that bone. And that, that type of measurement called post-provocation um, is basically termed measuring the body burden for heavy metals. And that's really something that um, several physician organizations have been studying. There are two major physician organizations, one called the American College for the Advancement of Medicine, ACAM, and the American College for the Integrative Medicine, ISM. Those are MD organizations that have studied um, how to measure this what doses of the chelator to use safely if these metals are present. And they've kind of led the way into sort of bringing us to this this exciting new area of medicine where we actually can start measuring some things that contribute to neurodegenerative disorders. Did I lose you? Not at all. People listening to this conversation may be now thinking, hey, I really ought to get this post-provocation test. And I'm thinking to myself, well, no, I didn't work in a paint factory, but I certainly liked to smell fuel when I was a teenager <laughs> when it was being put into the car. If I were to go to your clinic, explain for everyone exactly what would happen with this test. Would you give me an IV first, this chelation IV? Or would yes, it be that, a shot? Or... Yes, it's, it's, it's an IV. Um, now, there are... There are milder forms of measurement, but if if you don't if you don't give enough of the chelator um, to attract the metal out, you're going to underestimate what um, what we find. So there is an oral chelator that was approved for children in 1990 for lead poisoning and for mercury poisoning or toxicity, um, and that definition is really under question, you know, what, what constitutes lead toxicity? Well, the public health department says you should have a certain level of lead in your blood um, over, say, 60 or 70 micrograms, for instance, but that doesn't hold water. Researchers have shown that even within the so-called reference range for lead, which is 0 to 10 micrograms in your blood, there is significant toxicity particularly in children, so uh, attention deficit syndrome, um, learning disabilities, um, behavioral problems have been found within levels between, say, 3 and 6 micrograms of lead 
in the blood of a child. Um, so a lot of this work done by Harold Needleman at um, the University of Pittsburgh um, originally published a paper in 1979 in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that he could predict classroom behavior and IQ based on how much lead was in the baby teeth because teeth like bone would attract lead. And he found that, you know, the, the blood lead levels are unreliable. So basically what you, what you can do um, in children in particular is you can give some oral chelating pills for four or five days based on their body weight and based on an FDA formula for, for uh, removing lead. And, and I think at this point the FDA frowns a little bit on chelation. I'm not quite sure why. They certainly approved it for lead toxicity, but I think you know, because the definition of lead toxicity is based on blood lead level, um, it, there's a little bit of friction um, among physicians who chelate and physicians who don't know about chelation because they're feeling that, that the doctors are chelating inappropriately because the blood lead level isn't high enough. But the research clearly shows that it's an unreliable Markers to measure it in the blood. So you have to give a significant amount of the chelator um, to pull out enough metal to then collect the urine to measure it. So the the protocols that have developed been developed by the uh, by the International College of Integrative Medicine and the American College for Advanced Medicine calls for using around three grams of EDTA intravenously, which appears to be extremely safe. Um, you know, the doses uh, that were approved by the FDA are much higher than that. And if you use the, if you use the very high levels, you can overwhelm the kidney and create problems. Um, but that doesn't seem to occur at three, um, at three grams and certainly doesn't occur with one gram. There are many studies that used chelation in chronic kidney failure patients in the 80s uh, and, and sort of decided upon the safe dose to use. So, you know, basically the doses are relatively safe that we use, and but you have, but it, what you would do is you would, what I usually like to do is give the oral chelator for four days and then do an intravenous um, EDTA provocation where you give it intravenously and that starts attracting the metal out and you immediately collect the urine. And I also like to collect the bowel movement because the, the, the liver does most of the detoxing, and I find that if I just measure the urine, I'll miss some of the toxic metals that come out of the liver, particularly mercury. Mercury is, is heavily excreted through the liver into the intestines, and so I like to do um, collect the urine and a bowel movement and have those analyzed. And it's always a good idea to, to check the, the urine and the bowel movement and the blood before chelating so that you'll see that there really isn't anything being excreted. Um, that's called a pre-provocation measurement. And then you chelate, and then you collect the urine and the stool afterwards, and you can see the difference. You can see how much more metal is coming out of the body being attracted out by the chelator. So, yes, the measurement is, is an intravenous infusion of the chelator and then a collection of the, of the urine um, and, in my case, the stool. Um, that still hasn't gained favor yet, but I presented some data recently at a conference in Minnesota. Given uh, it was a, called an I Mosaic conference, it was a it was a joint conference for all the 
integrative medicine conferences, and I showed some data um, how stool measurements are really important for three very toxic metals that I find in my Parkinson's and Alzheimer's patients, uh, mercury, bismuth, and uh, tungsten are, are very neurotoxic metals that I find in practically all of my patients with, uh, with neurodegenerative disorders. So it is an intravenous infusion uh, and then collection of, of the specimens. Um, it's the only way to tell other than biopsying the bone and having it analyzed for several different metals, and that's, that's just not practical. Um, so it's, and that provocation, um, you know, in my experience, is very safe to do. Would your explanation then suggest that our bones and muscles are an exposure source for neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's? Absolutely. Um, you know, that's when you think of it, Robert, probably everyone listening knows someone who's probably over 65 who fractured a hip. And uh, this is a good forum to get this point across because I don't think it's considered. But, you know, I know what's in the hip bone now because I've measured it in, in, in several thousand people. Um, I, so I know what metals are in the bone. I know that these metals are primarily in bone because bone attracts most of the mineral. Um, so when you fracture a bone, you release this metal into the general circulation, and some of it is going to seed the central nervous system. Um, some of it is going to be absorbed by the heart. Some of it is going to be absorbed by the kidney. So it's the, it's the fracture causes a sudden release. So everyone knows someone who's, who's fractured a hip and died within a two-year period or went downhill tremendously. Um, you know, the, pretty close to national statistics across the board. I know certainly in several of the hospitals that I deal with that when you fracture a hip, when you have an older person over 65 who fractures a hip, and you follow them over a two-year period, 50%, half of those people are dead in a two-year period. And they die from apparently unrelated disorders like heart attack, stroke, dementia, pneumonia, um, God knows what, but they, but they die nonetheless after a fracture. So there's a tremendous deterioration in health after a bone fracture. Well, you have to ask your question, why? Um, well, what's in the bone? Well, you, you can tell what's in the bone with this provocation test. You know, studies have shown, um, dating back 30 years, that if you do these x-ray techniques that can detect these metals, that you see there's a significant quantity of these heavy metals in bone. So the bone becomes a source um, for, for disease later on. There's a very interesting study um, two years ago in the journal called Circulation which is the American Heart Association's major journal. This was by Howard Hugh, that's H-U, Dr. Howard Hugh's group at Harvard. Dr. Howard Hugh is, is a major researcher on, on bone lead and, and toxicity of other organs. And Dr. Hugh has done several studies for the, the uh, Veterans Affairs Normative Aging Study. And he's published over 230 research papers on what we're talking about today, on how, how lead gets absorbed into bone, and then from bone it transfers to other organs, and that bone lead is the, is the major culprit for eventual disease. 
So Dr. Hughes' group um, in in Boston at Harvard, um, they did this very special X-ray uh, called K-shell X-ray fluorescence, which could quantitate the amount of lead in your shin bone. And they took a thousand veterans from Boston uh, who were relatively healthy at the time. They did this X-ray of the bone to quantitate the lead content of bone. They found, uh, as they would in us, uh, there was no occupational exposures. These were normal citizens. They just grew up in America, um, grew up during the era of leaded gasoline and, and paint, lead and paint, etc. So they had the same exposures we did. They found that in these thousand veterans that they quantitated lead content, some of them had a very high lead content of their shin bones, and some of them had very little. Um, and again, that difference is explainable, uh, why somebody would retain more lead uh, in their bones and somebody else would excrete it. Some people have better excretion potential. Some people have better detoxing potential than others. So if your potential is not that good, you're going to retain more of these metals from the environment in your system. So they, they took these 1,000 veterans. They compared those who had the highest one-third for lead in their bone, the top um, tertile, they called it, and they compared them to the bottom one-third. So if you had the highest one-third for lead in your bone compared to those uh, of these 1,000 veterans that had the lowest one-third, they compared those two populations over a 10-year period. And they found that heart attack death rate was six times higher in, in the category of people who had the highest lead amount in their shin bone versus those with the lowest. And there was a three to four higher cancer death rate in the top tertile for lead versus the lower tertile for lead. So death from all causes were increased depending on the bone lead concentration. Now that paper was published in the journal Circulation in September of 2009. I haven't heard any reaction to that paper, but that was a huge confirmation into what I thought was going on and what Ellen Silvergeld has said for years, um, that, that these metals get sequestered in bone and then that becomes a source for the other organs. So that that makes it easier to explain. So if heart attack and cancer and dementia and and neurodegenerative disorders are more more likely to occur depending on the heavy metal content of your bone, certainly um, the bone becomes a source for the other organs. And I thought that research was fascinating. It is fascinating. Listeners will really know that the hallmark of idiopathic Parkinson's disease is something called the Lewy body. How do metals contribute to Lewy bodies? Lewy bodies basically define Parkinson's disease as, as opposed to, say, Parkinson's disorders or Parkinson's syndromes. The Lewy body is a, a stainable inclusion body or, or glob of, of junk in the middle of the cell uh, of the dopamine-producing cells, particularly of dopamine-producing cells with uh, neuromelanin, which is the pigmented cells. Those are the, usually the cells you lose in, in Parkinson's disease. The Lewy body, if you, if you analyze it, is, is normal protein from within the cell that's either been discarded and was being processed for, for removal, and it also has heavy amounts of iron and aluminum. 
Um, so the Lewy body, if you analyze a Lewy body, and a Lewy body is found in in patients with Parkinson's disease, and particularly it's found in other areas of the brain, um, in the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe in patients with Parkinson's disease and dementia. And the Lewy body is basically a glob of protein that is a normal constituent from proteins within the cell. These proteins have been defined. One is called the nusinclin, and another is called ubiquitin. Um, these are proteins that are normal structural and functional proteins within the neuron, um, and for somehow they accumulate in the middle of the cell where they're not supposed to be, and protein being negatively charged attracts metals, which are positively charged, just like in a magnetic effect. So anybody that's had a magnet and had some metal filaments and you can see them accumulate um, you know, to the magnet, that's exactly what the protein does to the metals. So when you analyze a Lewy body, which is the hallmark for Parkinson's disease pathology on autopsy, you find protein, normal proteins from within the structure of the neuron, and you find large amounts of iron, and you find aluminum. Um, and the theory is that the, the Lewy body, which is discarded protein that, that isn't properly digested. Um, so when you, when you restructure a neuron, which you have to do all the time, and the same mechanism occurs in Alzheimer's disease, you have protein digestive enzymes within your cells. They're called proteases. Um, and basically these, these protein digestive enzymes digest the old protein from within the, your, your neuron and then the, the structural machinery of the cell will make new proteins. In particular, the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria will, will produce new proteins to restructure your, your neuron so it stays healthy. So the old protein has to be digested by protein digestive enzymes. But in the case of Parkinson's disease and also in Alzheimer's disease, the discarded protein and the older protein doesn't get digested, so it piles up in the middle of the cell. And then being a negatively charged magnet, so to speak, it starts attracting iron and aluminum, and those metals are highly toxic when, they're, when they accumulate in large amounts in the cell. And that starts a oxidative syndrome where there's oxidative damage within the cell. So if you were, researchers have infused iron into the substantia nigra um, or, the, or the brainstem of laboratory animals and found that the same lesions that occur in Parkinson's disease occur in those laboratory animals uh, because of the iron infusion. So iron, which is extremely necessary within your cells, iron is responsible for the mitochondria's ability to make energy, to turn oxygen into energy. But if something displaces that iron, and pushes it out of the mitochondria into the cytoplasm, which is the free space within the cell, then it becomes extremely reactive and it will steal an electron from another area within the cell, and that's called oxidative stress. And that's what happens in Parkinson's disease. The cells basically are falling apart because of oxidative stress, and the hallmark of that is to, to analyze the Lewy body, which is normal discarded protein from within the cell and heavy deposits of iron and deposits of aluminum. And the iron and aluminum start stealing electrons from the other organs within the cell, and then the cell has no defense. And one of the defenses that the cell uses 
is called glutathione, and basically you use up your glutathione, and, and so your, your cell is then defenseless. And when it becomes defenseless, it dies. Uh, so the Lewy body is actually, cons- other than aluminum, which shouldn't be in there, is normal constituents within the cell, but the cell's falling apart, and those bodies are accumulating within. So researchers have quandered about the iron deposits in the brains of Parkinson's patients and what to do about it. And certainly, iron is removable with chelation because iron would be attracted to the chelator. So I'm not sure whether that's some of the reason why I see some clinical response or whether it's because um, of, of the heavier metals such as such as uh, lead and mercury. You're removing really all of them with the chelator. And, uh, there's a very interesting paper by Dr. McLaughlin published using um, iron chelators in, in Alzheimer's disease and showing a improvement and reduction of, of deterioration. What he thought, because iron deposits are also found in the, in the cells, in the cytoplasm, and outside the neurons in, in Alzheimer's disease. So iron, uh, again, is a very important ingredient um, in, in the cells, in the neurons, uh, to help us generate energy. But if iron gets displaced from the mitochondria into another area of the cell, it becomes toxic to the cell. So a Lewy body is normally discarded proteins with uh, heavy amounts of iron and aluminum. How do lead and mercury affect the function of the brain? Uh, boy, in in numerous ways. Um, there's so much research on their neurotoxicity. It would take us six shows to, to discuss. I think I, I think the first thing they do is they interfere with enzymes. So we mentioned how normal proteins from within the cell um, should be digested and removed. So a protein digestive enzyme takes a protein which is uh, coupled by several amino acids. So a protein is several amino acids linked together. That's what your genes are. That's what your structural proteins within your cells are. So when you restructure cells, you have to digest the old protein and get rid of it and recycle the amino acids so you can make new ones. So it's very important to have a functioning uh, protein digestive enzyme within your cells. Um, lead and mercury displace or inhibit enzymatic function. So an enzyme is a protein also. So enzymes function uh, because they have a certain conformation or form. Um, An enzyme, again, is a protein which is negatively charged. And all of our enzymes require minerals, trace minerals, to keep them functional. So, for instance, one of the digestive enzymes that are necessary to digest the proteins within a neuron, protease, requires zinc, which is a metal that holds the protein together in a certain shape. And it's the shape of that protein that allows it to grab um, the protein that you've discarded and help digest it. If, and zinc, being a positively charged metal, holds that zinc and copper and manganese, these are metals that hold the protein in its, in its proper form. Um, if you were to displace zinc with another metal, it would change the configuration of that protein, its stoichiometric form, and that would cause it to not be able to grab the, the substance that it needed to grab. So 
what we know from research is that lead and mercury displace zinc. And now they take the place of zinc, so that causes the protein to fold in a different form, and then it becomes useless. So one of the ways that lead and mercury disturb uh, neurologic function is that they inhibit normal enzymatic function. That in, a, in and of itself would be enough. However, there's many other things that happen. Lead and mercury also displace iron from the mitochondria of the neuron. And iron is extremely important um, in its functional state in an enzyme called cytochrome C in the mitochondria. And that allows oxygen to come in your cell. Iron steals an electron, cytochrome C with iron steals an electron from oxygen. And that allows oxygen to release energy to allow the cell to have energy to make its functional energy molecule called adenosine triphosphate. Lead and mercury displace iron from the, from the mitochondria. That was work done by Ellen Silvergeld at the University of Maryland. She showed that lead could disable the mitochondrial enzyme and reduce heme function, um, which is the energy molecule of your brain. Um, lead would inhibit that function. Lead also, in and its, of itself, and mercury um, cause a, a, a disassembly of the internal um, structure of the neuron. There's something called a microtubule. Your microtubules are tubular uh, protein structures that are support structures for the neuron, and they are uh, tubular structures that go from the body of the neuron through the axon to the end plate, and they help transport neurotransmitters. They help transport nutrients throughout the cell, and your your uh, microtubules are held together by a protein called tau, T-A-U protein. It's almost like a little coupling that is soldered in to hold the microtubule together. All this protein structure is assembled by your endoplasmic reticulum, which is a, a, an organ of the, uh, of the uh, neuron. Mercury is known to unsolder or, dis or uncouple tau protein, so that causes the microtubules to separate and and uh, basically fall apart, and that causes the internal structure of the neuron to disassemble. Lead also um, causes a dysfunction of calcium, and calcium is extremely necessary in the neuron to produce energy. The, the flux of calcium across cell membranes um, is extremely important um, to, to promote the, the electrical charge of the neuron. If your, electrical, if your neuron can't make its normal electrical charge, it becomes useless, and it can't, tra it can't transport information from your brain into your muscle. So lead inhibits calcium um, flux and displaces calcium um, and causes tremendous disruptions in normal electrical potential in the neuron. Um, there's so many different... Um, dysfunctions that occur with just lead and mercury alone. Um, aluminum also uh, embeds itself into the neurons' uh, genes, into the DNA, and causes an irreversible dysfunction of the, uh, of the, of the DNA of the neuron. And many, many examples of this throughout the history of medicine have been published uh, in 19, from 1950 to 1960 there were several thousand, several thousand cases of uh, neurodegenerative disorder, which they weren't sure what it was. It was tunnel vision blindness, paralysis, um, um, ataxia, which is unsteady gait. It was named after the town. It was called Minimata's disease because from 1950 to 1960, there was a terrible epidemic 
of this neurodegenerative disorder. It was a combination of multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease and, uh, and Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, um, and many of these patients died. And after about 10 years, finally on autopsy, there were very, very high mercury levels found in these patients. So they tracked down that mercury was being released from a factory um, that was based on the Minnemata River. They were making vinyl chloride, which is a derivative to make plastic, and they were using mercury as a uh, as a solvent, and they were dumping the mercury into the Minnemata River, and then it got into the fish. And once it got into the to the to the Minnemata Bay, the two surrounding towns got Minnemata's disease. Um, and finally, they shut the factory down, and Minnemata um, disorder uh, subsided, but it took almost 10 years of research to figure out it was mercury toxicity. And then, interestingly enough, over the next 10 years, there were sporadic outbreaks of Minimatis disease. There were 6,000 cases in Iraq. There were several cases in South America. So the researchers now, knowing that it was mercury causing that neurologic disorder, flew to those areas and were looking for mercury, and they found that there was um, a particular wheat seed um, that a, a factory, uh, a wheat-producing seed factory, was spraying their wheat with mercury chloride as a fungicide to keep it, uh, you know, keep it from getting moldy, so it would have a greater shelf life, much like we do with some of our vaccines. Um, mercury is a preservative, and the mercury was getting into the seed, and then the people were planting the seed and eating the wheat, and they were developing Minimatis disease. So when they, when they uh, prohibited the use of that particular seed, those epidemics of neurodegenerative disorders uh, disappeared. So that's sort of how we figured out over the many years how toxic mercury is to the brain. And then there's several examples of the same thing with lead, um, you know, lead toxicity in factory workers. And when you look at the brains of patients who are mercury toxic or lead toxic, you see specific neurologic um, changes in the brain. For instance, mercury causes degeneration of the cerebellum, um, causes degeneration of the temporal lobes uh, of the brain. Lead has another specific target. Um, now, when I test patients with neurodegenerative disorders, they don't have one of these metals. They have several of these metals. I have a chart in front of me now. It was a man who I measured with severe Parkinson's disease in uh, 2006. Now, just as an example, his blood lead level was 1.9 micrograms, which is very little because the average person has up to 10. But when I did the provocation test, he, he excreted 57 micrograms of lead over a 12-hour period which is obviously much higher than 1.9. So the provocation showed that the kidney excreted a great deal of lead. Now, there was very little mercury coming out of his 12-hour urine collection, but I collected a, a stool, and he had 15 milligrams of mercury come out with that one treatment. Now, that is an extremely high level of mercury. If you injected five or six milligrams of mercury intravenously into a patient, they would die within a few hours. Um, and, you know, we removed 15 milligrams safely on a chelator because it's, the chelator binds it and doesn't allow it to be released into the other tissues. Um, so, you know, basically the research on aluminum, on mercury, on lead, it's neurotoxicity. Um, 
Joel Pounds is a researcher who's who's done most of the lead toxicity. Ellen Silvergeld has published, you know, many many papers on the neurotoxicity of lead. The the one of the mercury gurus in this country, Tom Clarkson at the University of Rochester, he's he's shown uh, how mercury affects all levels of neuro, uh, neurologic function, all levels of neuron function. Um, you know, it's it's just the evidence is overwhelming. Um, and it's interesting how some people are sensitive to these metals and others have an ability to resist them. May I give you an example of that? Oh, please do. Um, there was there was an epidemic of something called Pink's disease in, ni- in the 1950s. Um, this was a disorder of, inf- of infants um, where their extremities would become extremely pink and then they would get extreme pain. And then in some cases they would actually lose the digits. Um, and it was a horrible uh, sort of mini epidemic. Um, and the pediatricians in the 50s discovered that it was due to a teething powder called calomel. And calomel was a teething powder that was used uh, pretty commonly uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and it was mercury chloride. And they found that the mercury chloride was being absorbed and it was getting into the extremities and the peripheral nerves and creating a peripheral neuropathy in, in these children and they were getting extraordinarily ill. So they, they, they prohibited the use of calomel as teething powder. And then that epidemic seemed to wane. Um, then in 1970, there was another epidemic of Pink's disease and there were some... 960 reported cases over several months of of this horrible uh, disease called Pink's disease, which is also medically called acrodynia, acro meaning um, periphery and dynia meaning pain. So it was a very painful um, disease of the extremities of these children, and and they'd get this pink discoloration of their hands. So now the researchers know what to look for. So they searched for a source of mercury because they found very high mercuries in these children who had Pink's disease. And they found that it was a diaper company that was using mercury chloride as, and spraying the diapers with mercury chloride with the idea that mercury chloride is a commonly used fungicide and that you know it's used in industry, it's used to spray on crops to, to basically stop it from getting moldy and, and de- degenerating from fungi. Um, and this diaper company was spraying the diaper with, with, with mercury chloride. And so Tom Clarkson was asked to investigate this from University of Rochester. And Dr. Clarkson showed some extraordinary um, findings. He saw that 960-some-odd children had, severe, had this severe disorder from Pink's disease from using these diapers. But well over 10,000 infants were regularly regularly using these diapers and he was he said it's extraordinary that that only 10% of the children got obviously clinically sick from using the same source of mercury so some of us have an increased sensitivity to getting sick from these metals and and other of us are lucky enough to be able to either handle them better neutralize them by our natural defenses or properly excrete them so i, I thought I thought that that was an extraordinary revelation how 10,000 children were exposed to these diapers on a regular basis, but only 
900 actually got sick from it. And I think, I think that's what makes this so uh, difficult for the medical community to understand. We all have lead in our bone. We all have mercury in our bone. There's no question about that. Um, but why do some get sick from it and others don't seem to get sick? And some get sick in different ways. And that's, it's very difficult for the medical community to grasp that, that, for instance, this particular metal, if it's present, is going to be causing the disease in everyone. Very interesting study from Baylor um, in the 90s. They found that patients with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, um, seemed to be people who were exposed to welding and people who were farmers who worked a lot of fertilizer. So if you work with fertilizer, you're guaranteed to be working with heavy metals that the cow tried to excrete through his liver. So, you know, we use this fertilizer to nourish our crops, but it's the excretion product of an animal who knew better to get rid of these metals. So when a cow eats lead, he, his liver will chelate it and excrete it through his manure. And then we're putting the manure around our plants, and so we're exposing the plants to the excretion product of an animal that knew how to excrete it. So the, the animal has all these defense mechanisms also. So farmers, for that reason, have higher incidences of neurologic disorders and Parkinson's disorder. Parkinson's is much higher in farmers than in non-farmers, uh, and so is uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So someone, and, and some other research showed that trauma, muscle trauma, um, or heavy physical labor with muscle breakdown seemed to incite the onset of Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. So someone at Baylor had the bright idea to biopsy the muscles of patients with neurodegenerative disorders, and they wanted to see if patients with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease had higher quantities of lead and mercury in their muscles than, say, somebody with Parkinson's disease. But lo and behold, they saw that the muscle biopsies of patients with all neurodegenerative disorders demonstrated the presence of aluminum, cadmium, mercury, lead, and arsenic, which are all neurotoxic. So they kind of dropped the ball and said, well, you know, we were looking for, there's a vast amount of literature showing that if you have an injury, if you have trauma, if you get injured in a car accident or, or, or even have major surgery, which is a traumatic event, then there seems to be an increased risk of, of Lou Gehrig's disease. And they wanted to prove that maybe these people have accumulated heavy amounts of lead and mercury in their muscles, and when you break down the muscle with the trauma, it gets released into the brain and spinal cord. But what they found was interesting to me that most, if not all, the patients with several different neurodegenerative disorders, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, and um, Parkinson's disease have heavy metals in their muscle tissue. So again, that becomes a source, doesn't it? But how it affects us seems to be somewhat genetic. You know, there might be some genetic, uh, and many of the genetics are being worked out now. Um, many of the genetics may predispose you to one disease over another. Um, so just to discount the fact that, okay, these metals are present in the muscle, but they're not predominantly pre pre uh, present in one particular disease, I think what we have to understand is we all handle these metals in different ways, and they're all attracted 
possibly into different areas of the brain based on our genetics. So I found that all this research is out there, and it's very little is known um, about what has been researched. But once once I learned how to measure what was in somebody, once I learned how to properly measure the heavy metals in somebody, I was able to then find these references uh, just out of my curiosity and see all this vast amount of research that's been done on neurologic disorders. Now, it's interesting to me that I have not found any research that analyzed the substantia nigra or the basal ganglion midbrain of patients with Parkinson's disease for lead and mercury. That has been done for Alzheimer's disease. So when you when you examine the brains of Alzheimer's patients and analyze them with microprobe analysis, which is a special technique to look at the mineral content of the brains, you find definite presence of aluminum, lead, and mercury in those brains. Um, but I haven't th that particular evaluation has been done in Parkinson's disease for aluminum and iron um, and for other trace metals. But I haven't seen any literature at all. Uh, analyzing the brain specifically for lead or mercury. So hopefully this will stir some interest in that. You know, our, our conversation has got to stir some interest, whether it's negative or positive. <laughs> yeah. My guest today is Dr. Joe Hickey from the Hickey Wellness Center in uh, uh, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Claim Your Parkinson's Recovery Magazine, the summer edition 2011, is hot off the press as of today. You can actually download the magazine by visiting the main website, www.parkinsonsrecovery.com, or you can certainly email me. I'll be delighted to give you a link. That's robert at parkinsonsrecovery.com, or you should be getting the link in the newsletter, which I sent out today. Simply click on the link, and you'll be able to download the dazzling articles that you're going to find in the magazine for this summer. If you'd like to be able to ask Dr. Hickey a question, call toll-free right now, 877-590-0733. By way of summary, Dr. Hickey, it sounds like uh, you're saying that bone loss, orthopedic surgery, or even bone trauma can contribute to neurological dysfunction. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, Robert. Uh, you know, in particular, when I see a young patient with it, um, I, for instance, have a 33-year-old man who has Parkinson's disease. Um, and now that I measure his, his toxic metal level, he had very high levels of mercury and lead only after the provocation, not in the blood. So when you, when you now know the presence of um, what's in the body, you and you you don't expect a young man to be losing bone. Um, you ask him, well, what's happened to you? And lo and behold, I usually get a history that he had a fracture. Um, he was in a car accident. He broke his leg about a year or two before the onset of his uh, symptoms. Um, you know, I I find that um, that if you're a younger person um, who develops early onset of disease, and of course, if the metals are present after the proper measurement, then, then some type of trauma to bone or fracture to bone um, is, is usually found in, in the history. Very interesting um, study from Duke University, um, Terry Monk, who is in the anesthesia department, 
because we're having a problem um, with cognitive dysfunction um, post-surgical. Um, that, that was quite obvious after bypass surgery, um, where patients would have bypass surgery and end up with a significant amount of dementia uh, within a two- or three-year period. And there are a lot of theories as to why that when you have bypass surgery, you have to go on a heart-lung machine, um, your blood pressure drops, um, they have to slow the heart down. So there's a lot of stuff going on there that, that maybe could contribute to lack of circulation to the brain and death of neurons. But that's not the case with orthopedic surgery. So we're seeing the same thing happening with orthopedic surgery, particularly with hip replacement. So Dr. Monk's group um, did a very intricate cognitive testing prior to total hip replacement and um, measured all parameters of thinking, calculation ability, memory. And then um, after the surgery, before um, they left the hospital, they repeated those tests and saw that a good 30% of the people had a significant drop in their cognitive function before the discharge from the hospital. Now, of course, they used anesthesia, they used several narcotic drugs, so you've got to take that into consideration. So they looked at those people three months later, and they saw even more of those people, up to 40%, had a significant reduction in cognitive function. And then when they looked at them over two years, it was up to 48%. So, you know, that's a big concern. And, and the idea is what happened there. There was no significant drop in blood pressure. Um, certainly the effects of anesthesia were well gone by that time. Um, what is the issue here? And my feeling is it's, it's because of what was in the bone. You know, what was in the bone to cause the arthritic process in the first place, um, you know, lead, for instance, gets into bone, it displaces calcium. You need calcium to repair your bone. Calcium stimulates the cell that allows the bone to regenerate. Um, the bone cell that regenerates bone after you use it, after you break it down with exercise and with gravity's effect on it, is called the osteoblast, and the osteoblast um, will repair the broken bone. Um, and it needs calcium as a stimulant. But lead inhibits the osteoblast, so it causes the bone to break down and it can't repair itself. And that's why our bone falls apart eventually. But, you know, when you operate on that bone, you're cutting through it. You're releasing it into the general circulation. And some of that, as Dr. Silbergeld has taught us, will, will enter the central nervous system. Um, and when lead enters the central nervous system, all bets are off as to whether or not that neuron's going to function properly or not. So, you know, basically, even surgical um, trauma is is a potential um, precipitating event to cognitive or neurologic dysfunction. Yes. Listeners are going to be interested in contacting you for appointments, Doctor Hickey. How do they get in touch with you? Well, um, I have a website. Um, Hickey Wellness Center. Um, my phone number um, is 843-842-9960. Um, I think, you know, not to toot my own horn, um, if you get on the website for the International College of Integrative Medicine or the American College for the Advancement of Medicine, that's ISIM and ACAM, you can find physicians who were properly trained in in these chelation techniques and who have, you know, studied and passed um, certification tests uh, by those organizations, you may be able to find somebody in your neighborhood um, if you get on those websites. 
Um, not that I'd, I wouldn't love to see you, but, you know, certainly traveling over great um, distances may be a problem. So, you know, there, there certainly is a, is a doctor in your area who might know some of the stuff that I'm talking about today. Now, obviously, I've, I'm a b- little bit of a maniac in my research. I love this stuff. I love to research the effects of these metals. So I've, I've sort of gone over the top with it. But, um, you know, I just find it's, a, you know, it, at this age, a fascinating new way of looking at my patients. Um, but, you know, certainly they can give me a call, um, but also they could get um, on the websites of those particular organizations and probably find a doctor who's knowledgeable in these techniques. The website is www.drjosephhickey.com. So that's D-R and then the word Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, and then Hickey, H-I-C-K-E-Y.com. And Dr. Hickey's clinic is in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Dr. Hickey, what will it take to get this research out there for proper controlled trials? People like you, what you're doing, um, you know, what you're doing for the public, um, you know, you you are a guiding light. You're a, you know you're a light in a dark room. Um, you know, this is the kind of forum that I've never had. Um, there's no way to stir the medical community in this direction unless there's patient demand. Um, it's just, I don't know why that is. I know that, that the research is done. Most of the research is done by PhDs, um, by brilliant researchers at major institutions. But the, the information just doesn't seem to be passed down. For instance, how did I not know how to properly measure heavy metals for 20 years of my of my uh, practice, um, it just it just isn't on the radar. Um, the fact that we have the, all this biological accumulation in our bones and it's not on the medical radar yet, it's it's mind-boggling. And I don't think there's a conspiracy, um, you know, against people getting well. I just I didn't know any of this research. I had no need to know it because I never really needed to apply it, or so I thought because I measured it improperly. So the only way to, I mean, think of Dr. Howard Hughes' study uh, in circulation showing that a major predictor of heart attack and cancer death was how much lead was in your shin bone. I mean, that should shock us, and, and that should be on Fox News, that should be on CNN, and it wasn't. Um, so I think it's, it's just a matter of awareness. Um, you know, I certainly was not aware of any of this research. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of stumbled upon how to measure it properly, but I was open to it. Um, I must say that I didn't regard chelation very high prior to uh, seeing it work. Um, so I, you know, and, you know, in my ignorance, because I had never done it, most doctors who criticize it or say that it's dangerous They've never done it. They've never, ever chelated a patient, nor have they ever found an elevated level of metal uh, with the proper measurement. So I think it's a little bit of ignorance. Um, it's also different than what we're doing. You know, basically, right now, we're kind of in a funk. We're in a mental funk uh, of prescription medication. Um, you know, all the research that's that's being um 
paid for is basically um, whether one drug is better than placebo. Uh, I p applied at least three or four years in a row to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, did not get considered until recently. Last year, I, I, I got a lot of consideration. I was in the final stages for possibly a research grant. What I wanted to do at that time is I wanted to have a double-blind placebo-controlled trial um, where I would chelate one group and give placebo chelation to another and have independent neurologists um, do testing on the Parkinson's patients once a month, and then they, could, they wouldn't know who was treated, and so they would independently score these patients to see if they were improving, not improving. And the PhD, uh, who was sort of uh, assistant in charge of the research, was very excited about this possibility. Um, and we already had recruited some patients. But when the final analysis came, when the decision of who to give the money to, um, it usually is turned over to the MDs. They they got very critical of the chelation process, and uh, they ended up giving uh, a substantial grant to a pharmaceutical company. Now, I understand that. I understand that we're looking for the magic bullet, but we haven't found it. And, you know, we haven't found it. It's about time we looked for cause. And when you, when you think of it, Robert, we're not looking for cause. You know, when someone gets sick, basically looking for the cause of that illness is not our first priority. It's diagnosing it and categorizing it. So if you've got Parkinson's disease versus you've got, um, you know, progressive supranuclear palsy or you've got multiple sclerosis, that actually has become the, do the job of the neurologist or the physician. Now that we've made the diagnosis, we have treatment plans which will consist of, you know, various medications to relieve the symptoms. But we're not looking at cause. We're not looking at, well, I wonder if, uh, for instance, we know that certain um, herbicides or, or, or pesticides like paraquat can um, be associated with increased incidence of Parkinson's disease. We know that certain environmental toxins, in particular uh, that toxin MPPP, uh, with, which is a which is derivative of uh, of of a narcotic that was made will create Parkinson's disease if it's if it's inhaled or injected. Um, we know that environmental issues have caused Parkinson's disease. So, but our our paradigm our 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 focus is is really in medicine not to look for that. And I can't really explain that. I just think it's a paradigm we're in right now. Um, you know. For instance, who would think of checking the lead content of the shin bone to prevent a heart attack? But Dr. Hughes showed a high correlation. So this is the direction we have to start, you know, sort of pushing ourselves into. And the only way it's going to happen is, is with public awareness. Um, it's going to be demand. Um, and, you know, I think, um, I think the days are numbered where we just sort of line up and say, okay, I've got this, this disease, uh, these are the pills I'm going to take for it, and then all I can hope for is uh, maybe a slower uh, degeneration or, or progression of my disease. I think, I think the time is, is ripe for us to say, well, why can't we look for the cause of this? Uh, why can't we look for Because there isn't one cause. There's a combination of things, I'm quite sure. It isn't just lead and mercury, but they certainly contribute. If they didn't why would people 
improve when you removed it. Uh, but I don't think it's the major. I don't think it's. I don't. Should I say it's not the only cause? You have to have a certain genetics, and the genetics is is kind of being worked out. You have to have in certain environmental exposures. You have to have uh, release of those environmental exposures into the brain. A lot of things have to have to come together. Um, but I know that in my own case, um, applying this research has really wreaked uh, some tremendous benefits. Um, for instance, one of my patients fractures a hip, and I watch them closely, and they start becoming demented and having trouble putting words together. If I measure the metals, find the neurotoxic metals in them, and remove them, I can see reversal of that. So I think the idea that that these toxins are in the body, that they're predominantly in the bone, and when something happens to the bone, it transfers to the brain, I think that should be uh, fairly well accepted by the medical community, but it's not quite on the radar yet. So the only way for it to get on the radar is for us to talk about it. Dr. Joe Hickey, on behalf of the many, many people who have listened to this show live and the many more people who will actually be listening over the coming weeks and months, I want to thank you for this most illuminating and informative discussion. Well, it was fun, Robert. I, I think if I was, if I didn't talk to somebody about it, I would burst. <laughs> <laughs> well, th I'm, I'm telling you, there are many, many people who are listening, and I think you will discover here in the coming months that you've had a profound impact on many, many individuals. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. I thank you also, Robert. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are listening to this show, that you are on the road to recovery. Have a magnificent week. Good day.